Uh, it is good to be in the house of the Lord always, but it's always special when we come to this season of Christmas, isn't it? Uh, there's something about it that, that I think the Lord uses in a special way to work in our lives and to change us and make us who it is that he wants us to be. And I want to take a few minutes this morning to talk about the war on Christmas. And some of you, like, eye rolled so hard inwardly when I said that because you're tired of hearing about, you know, Starbucks cups and things of that nature. Well, good news, you don't have to hear that junk here. You can find that somewhere else. Go to YouTube or something. But uh, we, we're not doing that here. I want to talk about the original war on Christmas. You may say, well, what is the original war on Christmas? Well, I want to tell you that what happened 2,000 years ago uh, caused such a ripple effect of chaos and crazy that today we're still actually living in the middle of it. Uh, it's wild to, to think about and realize that when uh, Christ was born, like we're making a big deal. Like we've got a choir, we've got lights in the auditorium, we had cocoa and cookies today. Like Christmas is a big deal for us today and as much fanfare as we make of it, it's weird for us sometimes to stop and realize that when Jesus was actually born, very few people actually knew about it. Like, it was a very low-key deal. People weren't aware. It wasn't the big deal that we've made it today. But in those who did know, we find in the Gospels that the very first people who knew had mixed reviews. The reviews were in, and they were not all good. Like, not everybody was pumped about the Savior of the world being born. And we're going to see some of those mixed motives as we look today at Matthew chapter 2. So if you have a Bible, turn with me there to Matthew chapter 2. But what I want us to see, and what I've been praying all week that the Lord would do in you and me today, is make us aware that this war that started 2,000 years ago still wages in your heart and mind. That, that if we're not careful, we too are pulled in multiple directions. And the news of the arrival of Christ, the Savior of the world, not like the soft Jesus that, that America talks about a lot or, or that you hear about in some places, but the real Jesus of the Bible, when he comes and interrupts human history and interrupts life as you know it, if we're honest, we've kind of got mixed feelings about that. And we're going to see in the text that there were two different responses to Jesus, and we're going to consider which one do we fall in line with. How have we responded to the birth of Christ? I think it's a question we need to ask. James chapter 4 asks a really wild question. It says, uh, why is it that uh, your passion, why is it that you fight? Why is it that you struggle? Why isn't there unity in the church? This is the rusty paraphrase version, but this is what James 4 says. Why is it that things are a mess around you and inside of you? And here's the answer that James gives. Is it not that your passions are at war within you? And I want to tell you, friends, that whether you realize it or not today, your passions are at war within you. And as we roll into this Christmas season, it would be easy to just kind of repress that, right? Kind of push that to the back burner so we can enjoy Christmas and we sing some carols and get some cocoa and move on with life, right? But what I want us to do and what I want us to consider is something so important that you and I should actually pay attention to it and actively choose to set the affections of our heart on Christ today. So that's my heart. That's what I'm praying the Lord will do as we study his word together. Uh, some of you, when we say war on Christmas, you might be thinking, yeah, you're part of the problem, Rusty, because we've been in Christmas for three weeks, and you haven't preached one of the Christmas narratives yet. 
Well, congratulations. Uh, War is over. Uh, We are in Matthew 2 in one of the premium Christmas texts here. Premium content you're about to get, right? Usually I make you pay extra for this, but today it's free. Matthew 2. Let's read the Word of God and we'll pray and ask for His help and we'll um, study it together. Verse 1 says this, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, so, for so it is written by the prophet. And he's quoting here from Micah, the Old Testament prophet. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Verse 7, Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. you pray with me? Lord, we're grateful for this opportunity to gather with your people and study your word. God, I pray that you would speak so clearly to us today that we would know beyond the shadow of a doubt that we've met with you. So, Lord, I thank you for coming. I thank you, Lord, for a special day where we can just recognize that in this season. And, Lord, I thank you even for just being able to acknowledge with one another that we have these passions waging war in our lives. I pray, God, that by your Spirit you would show us how to kill our pride so that we can humbly respond to you. We thank you for what you're going to do in this time. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Well, we're looking at this story of the wise men, and it's always interesting because uh, they're at the center of a lot of debate when it comes to Christmas time. Because one of the great misunderstandings is that we assume the wise men were at the nativity, but but actually that probably was not the case. They showed up sometimes after the birth of Christ, uh, maybe a few days, maybe even up to a couple years. We don't really know, but they certainly play a role in the Christmas story, and it's an important role. As we said earlier, the Savior of the world is born. Jesus has come, and not very many people knew it. But we have a God who is in the business of revealing himself to us. He's already shown up to the shepherds in the field. Spoiler alert, we're going to talk about that next Sunday morning. But now we have a radically different group of people, a group known as the wise men, or in Greek, the magi. You've heard that term before. Though we derive our word magic from this word, these guys weren't magicians. Though, you know, but in wild, if one of the gifts would have been like, here's some swaddling cloths, and just kept going and go, no, uh, anybody, okay. It's all right, tough crowd on Christmas Sunday, it's fine. 
But, but this word magi really just meant that they were some sort of priest or astrologers. Oftentimes they were experts in dreams and sacred writings and the such. But this group of people saw a star shining in the east. And this text makes it clear that this was not your average star. Now, I just want to tell you, and some of you are going to send me some articles, and that's cool, and I appreciate it, and I do think it's neat and interesting. But, like, every few years, people try to say, hey, this astrological event is probably what the star in the east was. And, and like, the Bethlehem star is out this year. And I'm like, okay, cool. But the Bible says that the Lord is who put that there, right? Uh, so this wasn't just some randomly occurring natural phenomena or anything like that. We believe that the Lord put this star in the east so that they could see and follow it. And, by the way, the text says that, like, you know, the star ended above the house of Christ. So, uh, you know, if next time the Bethlehem star comes out, y'all go find where Christ was born, apparently. Um, so I'm just saying that it probably wasn't some natural occurring event, but the Lord, in fact, made this happen. All the way back to the Old Testament, we see this prophecy talked about, like going back to the book of Numbers even. Balaam talks about the star that will come to lead Israel, a star from Jacob. And the prophet Isaiah talks about the light of the world who will come. And it's interesting to note that these magi, these wise men, were, were probably not Jewish. In fact, we, we almost certainly know that they weren't. They were outsiders, yet they still paid enough attention to know that something was happening. And though the text tells us that there were three gifts, I think because of that, we generally have assumed there were three wise men, but probably not. Like, if you're going to travel across the country and across the known world at this time, you probably don't set off with just three of you riding camels like most of us see in the portrayal of that. This was likely an entourage of folks, many people traveling to see what they were looking for. And when they get to Judea, they're intercepted by Herod. And Herod wants to talk to them about what they've seen and what they're doing. And it's at this point that we see two very different responses to the news of the arrival of Christ. And first, what we're going to see is a prideful response. And that's exhibited here in the text in the way that King Herod Response. Now, King Herod was really king in title only, okay? Uh, Rome ruled the known world at that time, including Jerusalem. He was kind of like a governor-ish uh, who kind of ruled over the Jews there, but he was known as the king of the Jews. So you can imagine his surprise when somebody rolls up, and, and I guess walks up on a... Anyways, someone shows up and says, hey, we're here to see the king of the Jews. He's been born and we're here to worship him. His first reply would be like, say what? You're, you found him, but I wasn't born today. Now listen, if some crazy Yahoo were to roll into Herod's office, I don't know why I'm calling it office, just go with it, okay? So say someone shows up to Herod and they're like, hey man, someone else is king. Probably what happens at that point is they're going to have him killed or something, right? It's just a crazy guy. Get him out of here. Drag him out. What's up with that? But, but there was such a scene that was caused by this entourage rolling in, this posse of magi. Like, um, imagine with me that a caravan of camels, of people from a totally different land were to go down Kellogg today and exit on Mays and go down in front of our church right now with signs that said, the Christ is here. The King is here we would probably be pretty interested in that. 
So, so this is what Herod is faced with. He sees that it's a big deal. He knows there is a commotion and a ruckus in Jerusalem about these guys showing up. And, and he says to them, wow, I too want to worship this Savior who's been born. So here's the deal. Go find him and please come back and report to me where he's at so I too can go and worship. Of course, we know that Herod was not so interested in worship, but rather his intention was murder. We don't read, but further down in this chapter, one of the most grotesque passages in Scripture where Herod has all of the baby boys in the region murdered, trying to eliminate this threat to his authority. So the Bible tells us that Herod was troubled by the news of the arrival of Christ. Now, I know this is difficult because the fact of the matter is None of you in here have hopefully ever given an order to execute millions of babies, okay? But, but, but I just want to throw this out there. You and I sometimes are a lot more like Herod than we would like to think. The, the news of the arrival of Christ troubles us, and though it's easy to distance ourselves from him because, man, he did some really bad, awful things, I want to just ask you the question, when you hear that Christ has come and that he calls on you to follow him, is the question in your head and your heart, well, what does this mean for me? Because that's really what Herod is asking. In fact, really the question, now you and I would never articulate this, but what our heart's cry is when we hear that there's a new king in town, our hearts at a soul level say, I, I thought I was the king. See, we live in a world that makes you and I the rulers of our own little lives. So, so like Herod, we let pride circumvent our response to Jesus. We take the deceptive route. We say, oh, I want to worship Jesus. Yet if we're real, our hearts are full of self-worship. We say that we want to worship something bigger than ourselves, but we quietly go about killing anything that causes us discomfort or that conflicts with our desires. Little do we know, friends, what we're actually doing is eliminating the only source of help in our lives. Herod was trying to kill the hope of salvation for all humanity. I think many of us find ourselves in this situation today. We live in a world that seeks to make you the king. And your rule is above everything else. You see that reflected in a million ways in our culture. King, you is the dictator and ruler of your life. You can make it happen. See it on the big things all the way to the daily issues in our lives. We are wired and, and just to protect ourselves and to preserve our own lives above everything else. And I want to tell you, the church is not immune to this. In fact, just like Herod, we're good at putting on a show. Tell me where this Jesus is. I just want to worship him. So we kind of talk, act, dress, and do all the things that Christians do in our culture, make it all look great, but the reality is there are moments in life and there are things that happen that pull the curtain back, and when the curtain is pulled back, it is exposed that the reality is every single one of us 
has this tendency to want to call the shots and direct our own lives. But I want you to know that this prideful response is never going to bring you peace, hope, joy, and meaning in your life. The only way you can experience hope today is to stop being the king and start worshiping the king. And y'all, let me just be real with you. You stink at being king anyways. <laughs> like you've made a flipping mess of your life. Just be real for a moment. Like, look, like I have not, you have not ruled well. Like you should be voted out of office. Somebody should overthrow you. And God in his grace comes in and says, let me rule and reign over your life. The good news of Christmas is that there's a better way. God sent Jesus to die for all of the fake kings who were out there trying to run their world. And in his amazing grace, he leads us to these moments where we realize I can't do this, but Jesus has done it for me. So we're reminded that we are all just beggars at the feet of Jesus calling out for his help. So my prayer is that as Christmas unfolds, we will be reminded of who Jesus is and who we are, the, the powerful, majestic, mighty Savior, and then there's us. But in love, he came to us so that we could be made right with him. So how do we respond to this? Well, that's where we need to look at this second response. So in Herod, we see a prideful response but in the wise men, we see a humble response. These guys went on an epic journey. Like we, we know from just thinking about where they came from, from a logistics standpoint, scholars suggest it probably took anywhere from one to two months for them to get to this place. And again, the only, they didn't have GPS, right? Like they're rocking out looking at a star in the sky. You ever watch those shows where they just drop people off in the woods and they're trying to navigate by looking at the sun? Man, that ain't happening with me. I'm going to die. Don't put me on that show. Well, some of y'all would because you think it'd be funny. I don't, I don't think that's my idea of entertainment. I'd be lost, but these guys are following this star, and the Lord is leading them, and they get to where they're going. They weren't too important. The Bible says they left their lives. They were willing to go. They were willing to travel and leave their lives behind. That They humbly said, nothing else in my life is worth holding on to. Let's go find the Savior. Oh, friends, have you ever had that kind of moment in your life? Where, where you were willing to go and find Jesus, whatever it took? When they get there, we see them worshiping with these valuable treasures, three gifts that have some pretty powerful symbolism. First, gold, which throughout the Bible and even history is reserved for royalty. This baby was the true king. But then we've got frankincense, which was primarily used for worship. It was used in the altar of the temple. This was saying this isn't just the king of the earth, but this is the king of all creation. He is Lord. And then he also received myrrh, which was a pretty common thing and most commonly actually used for burial, foreshadowing what may come of Christ what will come of Christ. 
So this Jesus is fully God and fully man, and these gifts represent that he had come fully God and fully man, but he would die on the cross to pay the price for our sins, but he would be raised, raised from the dead by God to rule forever as King of kings and Lord of lords. And the question becomes for you and me today, friends, how have we responded to this news? So our passions are at war within us, Right? And the question I have for you, and the question I wrestled with this morning as I was studying and praying early this morning, sitting on my couch, just saying, Lord, how can I kill this pride that is in me so that I can humbly respond to you? Because can we just be real, y'all? Like, we, even like if the manger was right here and baby Jesus was in there, that would be pretty wild. But if that happened, he's back there, but it's porcelain. We may all come, but, but, we'd have some mixed motives, wouldn't we? Like, no matter what, like, as good as we try to be, as, as hard as we work to, to be like, like, there's some mixed motives that we would be wrestling with. So, so what I just want us to acknowledge today is that we've all got a little bit of this Herod side in us that we need with the Lord's help to eliminate, right? So, so how can we do this? I, I want to just give you three quick things. Some of you are like, he's just now to his three? It's going to be fine, guys. I'm not going to be here that much longer. Probably like 30, 40 minutes and we'll be done. We'll see. Sandy's always ready. I love that. So how do we eliminate our pride? How is it that we do this? First, I want to just invite you to surrender. Surrender. In fact, the text itself invites us to surrender. Just like the wise men were willing to leave their lives and go and find the Savior, I want to ask you, have you abandoned your life for the sake of finding Christ? And I want to just be real with you. If you haven't done that, then you might not truly be saved today. You might not truly know Jesus as your Lord and Savior if you have never surrendered your life and said, I am all in on finding Christ. One of the greatest dangers of our culture today, I think, friends, is cultural Christianity. This idea that we just all kind of look like and we just like sing some songs about Jesus and call ourselves a Christian and feel like that's good. But the reality is Jesus never invited us to look like a good person or to just be a good person. Jesus didn't come to make bad people good. He came to bring dead people to life so that we might live for Jesus in a radically different way than the rest of the world. So I just want to ask, is that you today? I've been challenged by Matthew chapter 13 this week. Jesus speaking in parables had these two short parables back to back. He said the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure that somebody stumbled onto in a field. And he covered the treasure up and in his joy, he went and sold all that he had so that he could buy that field. And then he said, also the kingdom of heaven is like a a merchant who searched for pearls and found this one pearl of great price, something that was so valuable, so worth it, that he went and sold everything so he could obtain that pearl. I was just so challenged when I read those passages, and and I hope that you will be too as you think about that. Have you discovered in Christ today Somebody so valuable, is he your treasure to the point that you say, I am willing to surrender everything else I have so that I can find Jesus? And can you say that that's true of your life today? 
I don't know that I can all the time. But what I want to tell you today and in this Christmas season as we worship Jesus, I want you to know and experience that he is worth giving up everything for. He is worth wrapping your life around him. Christianity is not about a set of moral values, guys. Like so many of us think Christianity is like trying to be a good person and coming to church and doing these things. And, and then when you have that misunderstanding, a lot of you don't come to church much because you're like, well, you don't have to go to church to, to be, you know, I'm a good person. I don't go to church very often. Like, listen, it's not about going to church or being good. It's about none of that. Here's the problem with that. If it becomes about morals and how good a dude or, or good a person you are, here's the reality. At the end of the day, you're always going to find somebody worse than you. Don't look at them if they're sitting by you, all right? <laughs> but isn't this what we do, right? Like, well, yeah, I mean, I got some problems, but at least I'm not this guy. This is what we do, and we kind of just find ways to make it that we're spiritually better and, and that we're okay based on our morality. And, and here's what I want to tell you. None of that stuff at the end of the day matters. The original war on Christmas is not a war for your behavior, brothers and sisters. It's a war for your heart. Now, certainly, if your heart belongs to Jesus, it is going to change the way you live. But, man, I think there's a lot of people who just try to change the way they live and don't really have a heart for Jesus. Some of you maybe have been trying to be like Jesus for years and years and years, but if your heart is not on fire for him, if you don't really love Jesus today, then, then I just got to tell you, you're missing the whole point. So the invitation is to come and surrender. Cultural Christianity is the religion of Herod, by the way. It's the idea that I'm a Christian, but I'm not passionately in love with Jesus. And I got to tell you, here in the Midwest, there's tons of these people. Oh, they call ourselves a Christian, but they don't have a thriving relationship with Jesus. And here's what I want you to hear in my heart. That's not judgment, it's concern. Because the Bible says many people will say to me, Lord, Lord, and I will say, depart from me. I never knew you. Do you really know Jesus today? Or are you just trying to be a good person? Spoiler alert, you're not a good person and you're not going to be able to do it. So stop comparing yourself to the other people in your life and instead humbly respond by surrendering your life to Jesus. These next two are gonna go quicker. Let's talk about continually seeking Christ. I wanted to say this because I do think what happens is when we talk about surrender, when we talk about salvation, here's what cultural Christianity does to us. Cultural Christianity takes Jesus and makes, instead of it being someone we, who we are, it takes Jesus and turns him into something we've done. Does that make sense? Here's what I mean by that. Yeah, I went to youth camp when I was a kid and I gave my life to Christ. Or, or yeah, I walked down the aisle when I was seven at my church. Or uh, I went through confirmation classes when I was this age. Or I, I checked off these boxes so now I know that I'm a Christian because I did these things. I want you to know some of you may have truly given your life to Christ in those moments and I praise God for that. Some of you maybe haven't and you need to wrestle with that and I'm not going to try to take that tension away for you if the Lord is doing that and you need to wrestle with that. But here's what I want to say. Following Jesus is not something you did. It's something you are today right now actively called to be doing 
We will be seeking Jesus until we go to glory. We will be following that star until it's over the house where Jesus resides today in glory. So are you continually pressing into him? Well, you say, well, how do we do that, Rusty? Well, last week in Psalm 46, we, we said it this way. We want to be a people who behold the works of the Lord by getting in his word and spending time with him and by being still, hearing his voice, praying, talking to him, having a real relationship with him. And, and if you weren't here last week, you may want to go listen to that message because some of you think, oh, here we go again. He's saying I need to have a quiet time to be a good Christian. No, I'm saying you need to love Jesus and really spend time with Jesus. And it's possible, not out of guilt, not out of shame. That doesn't help you, but because you want to know and love him. We should be a people who continually seek Christ. And all of this culminates with us living a life of worship. So we worship him. And when I say worship him, I don't just mean showing up at church every Sunday. I don't just mean trying to do some sort of daily devotional. I mean everything in your life being done in response to what Christ has done for you. We've defined worship in this way before. Worship is our response to what we value the most. Worship is our response to what we value the most. So, so back to this idea of surrendering. If Jesus isn't your treasure, then whatever your treasure is, that's what you're worshiping. Your whole life is built around, maybe it's your work and it's your financial well-being. Maybe it's your family. By the way, nothing wrong with work and family, but, but when those things become your treasure, your life's going to get out of whack. But Jesus is inviting us today to worship him, to treasure him in such a way that everything in our lives revolves around him. Everything we do, the way we raise our families, the way we go to work, the way we celebrate Christmas, the way we spend our money, the way we spend our time, the way we interact with everyone, all of that becomes worship. And worship is just our response to what we value the most because I value Jesus over everything because I treasure you, Jesus, beyond everything else in this life. I want to live for you. Friends, some of you may be thinking, this sounds pretty radical. We came to church on Christmas Sunday, the week before Christmas, to hear the choir, and this guy's telling us that I gotta give everything to Jesus. Here's what I want to tell you. Yep, 100%. <laughs> but, but here's what I do want to tell you, not to soften that call, because sometimes, and I, I was thinking about this yesterday, if you would have told me in Christmas of 2017 that I'd be standing here in Wichita, Kansas, preaching to a group of people, I would have slapped you and said, you're crazy. Go get me some eggnog or something, right? But here I am. Sometimes God calls you to do things that you never expected you'd have to do. There are people who have moved and gone to a foreign country to tell people. So sometimes that happens, but can I tell you what may be even more radical than that it is you doing your shift work at the plant for the glory of Jesus instead of the glory of you. For, for you raising your kids not to be awesome and successful and great, but instead raising them to be godly for the glory of God you teaching in the school and administrating being a worker in a school or wherever you go in the hospital as a nurse but whatever you do wherever you're going to say this isn't about me I'm going to do this 
in response to Jesus because I value him above everything. He's given me this and I'm gonna use this for his honor and glory. That's a radical way to live. So how have you responded to Christ today? I want you to wrestle with that. We're gonna have a song of response here in a moment. I'll be down here if you wanna talk to me about it. If you wanna pray about it, I'd love to to have the opportunity to do that. You may wanna come pray at these steps. That's okay too. You may wanna stand right where you're at and pray there. But what I want you to know is this, that Jesus calls on every one of us to respond to what he's done. So let's be a people who humbly respond, who worship him with all of our lives because we've surrendered everything and we're continually seeking him. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for the challenge that it brings us today. God, I just ask that you would, by your grace, speak to us in such a way that we can receive and respond to this word. Whether it's in these few minutes here or maybe it's later in the day, God, just don't let us leave with the war still raging. God, you've given us everything we need to win the war on Christmas inside of us right here, right now. So, Lord, I pray that this would be a room full of people who are surrendered to you. Lord, we love you and we thank you. It's in your name we pray. Amen.